Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Fruiting Bodies podcast. I'm Elon. And I'm Becca. And we are here today with Buki Padipe of Adventures with Ohm. I am so excited to have her on here. I know Becca and I are like just so ecstatic to have somebody who is like-minded, just like with us, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, there's this beautiful, beautiful sister who is not in the U.S., who's doing the kind of things that we are interested in, the kind of things that we are doing ourselves. And when you reach out to us, we were like, oh, we're going to collaborate in some kind of way. We know we've been watching your moves with these conversations. We've been seeing each other kind of like work in this space that's kind of new to, you know, both of us, all three of us. This is all very new. And so I'm super excited to introduce you to everybody and for you to like continue to share your story, your testimonies and like what you hope to do in the future. Welcome to the Fruiting Bodies podcast, an intersectional response to the mushroom boom and the next wave of psychedelics. We're your hosts, Becca and Elon, co-founders of Fruiting Bodies, a Portland, Oregon-based community platform dedicated to highlighting diverse perspectives. We're here to learn together, have tough conversations, and celebrate the leaders and creatives who are helping shape a better world. This show is for earth lovers, activists, and the mushroom curious. Come for the advocacy, stay for the contagious laughter. We're glad you're here. Let's get mycelial. And if you don't recognize that word, we got you. Come learn with us. So with that being said, I'm going to ask you some questions. And cool. the first one is a little bit about your history, like your backstory, where you grew up and like about your background and your culture. You can get into it as much as you want. But that's, you know, one of the things that makes us us. So I'd love to hear more about that. Cool. Yeah, I'm happy to share. Thanks for having me on here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So a bit of my backstory. Well, I'm Nigerian. I'm British Nigerian. Uh, well, dual nationality. But I was born in Nigeria in a small town called Ibadan, which is north of Lagos, which used to be the capital. I guess one thing a lot of people probably don't know about me is the fact that I, I don't know if I've mentioned it, I have a mixed race mum. She's got an Irish mother and a Nigerian dad. So I guess my first 10 years were in Nigeria, which was amazing. I had a really lovely childhood, very outdoorsy, very sort of just being at one with nature, very natural. We didn't have video games in telly. We were always kind of like playing outdoors, in the sunshine, being super creative. I was quite a creative child, quite introverted. Introverted in the fact that I just love being up in my own mind and in my own imagination and loved writing stories and illustrating them and um, swimming in the sea. And yeah, I had a, I wouldn't say an idyllic childhood because there, there was a, a little bit of, well, my parents got separated when I was quite young. I think they married super young and uh, yeah, it didn't work out, unfortunately. So I kind of grew up not really knowing my dad much and also grew up with this sort of weird abstract sense of race. And I say this because I was born in Nigeria in the 80s. I'm in Africa. It's predominantly black. I'm not a minority, but I was very aware that I was very different. You know, I had 
a mum that was way fairer than me, maybe your colour when you're most tanned, Rebecca, because she's pretty fair. And then obviously I've got a white grandmother as well who lived not far from us. So we always stood out, but obviously I knew she was very different, but I didn't get any race chats or conversations about race from my mother. I did get a baptism of fire from my dad when I was about eight years old. And on one of the rare occasions that my sister and I went to stay with him, he was like, there's this film that I really want you to watch. And he sat me down and he got me to watch, you know, the series Roots. Roots. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. That's all black kids around the world now I know why. Like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. My name is not. And it's serious. I mean, it's so educational. It's amazing. But I wasn't prepared, you know. It's really weird reflecting back because right up until that age, actually, well, no, seven, I had just been going to local schools and just, you know, knowing I was different and everybody treated us different, even my mum and I, just based on our race or her colour, her colouring. And I just equated whiteness with being better. I'm telling you all of this just to give you some real context. So yeah, it was a bit of a baptism of fire because I just was like, what the hell? Hang on. Just like didn't know how to look my grandmother in the eye after that. Getting that, you know, weird sort of reality check that actually it was kind of just a complete flip around because I say we were treated differently as in like we wouldn't have to queue for very long if we were at the supermarket and things like that. Basically in Nigeria at that time, you know, this is ex-British colony. Any expats that were living there were either researchers or scientists or agriculturalists or whatever, way more well-off in terms of money. So basically, they were first-class citizens and treated like first-class citizens. We weren't very well-off. My grandmother was earning a, a local wage. She was a nurse, a matron, the head of nurses in the hospital she worked at. But still, you know, we, we had quite a humble, like, you know, working-class life. Fast forward to, I was just about to finish primary school, we decided to move back to the UK. My mum had the complete opposite upbringing to me. She was actually born in London, grew up here before she moved out to Nigeria. In hindsight, my dad had gotten very, very ill. There was a massive gap where I barely saw him. And I was just, you know, I knew he was sick, but I didn't know what he had. He got cancer and then it became terminal, unfortunately. So in hindsight, I think she already knew that he was not going to make it. I was just finishing primary school. She decided she wanted us to have a British education. So she packed us all up, my sister and I. And yeah, we moved to England where I've been since I was 11 years old. So yeah, been a Londoner since then, apart from a short stint in Lisbon, where I started Adventures in Om, actually. I only moved back um, late last year to the UK. I have recently pivoted into this sphere and this like title of a transformational guide that I'm still sort of expanding into and figuring out myself. So yeah, I come from quite a creative background very arty, but went down the fashion routes and ran my own business for 10 years, which was a concept store selling a mix of fashion and some of my designs, art, ceramics, lots of nice, cool stuff from independent makers and ethical designers. I came about this through my own personal healing journey, actually. And it's quite 
kind of cliche to say that my route to this work has been my journey of self-actualization, my journey of healing. Like Adventures in Nom is actually the fruit of my kind of integration process, let's say. And through my integration process, I realized that I was severely unhappy because, you know, hence I started my my healing journey. I, I fell into a, a pretty dark depression. I suffered from depression historically. I had it on and off from my teens, not dealing with the trauma of my father's death and I had quite a rocky kind of few teenage years growing up with a single mum. She suffered a lot. I think she, in hindsight, realised, you know, even though she hasn't categorically admitted it, fell into a depression. And, you know, my sister and I were quite kind of, oh, what's the best way to just, yeah, she kind of um, neglected us, unfortunately, for a good chunk of, you know, the beginning of our time in London and things were really hard from having this, I don't want to call it completely idyllic because it wasn't, but really lovely, beautiful, kind of surrounded by family and friends to being in a country that was cold. I hated winter (laughs) here. It was just like (laughs) gray all the time and I just didn't get it. So I struggled and I think there was a lot of buildup of trauma. We moved around quite a lot because we were really poor. We always struggled with money. We were renting places and you know, bless her, she was doing her best looking after two young girls on her own. It was lots of upheaval and lots of emotional turmoil and lots of hardship. Yeah, to cut a long story short, it all just kind of came crashing down on me because I'd have bouts of depression from the age of 18, but I never really had a bit of counselling in high school and then again in my 20s. But that barely really, you know, it helped me manage things, but it didn't heal anything. And you know, having that sort of counselling on the NHS, which is a free health service here, you know, you're the whim of whoever, they try to allocate you to a counsellor for a significant amount of time. But if they go off on holiday or maternity leave, then suddenly you come to your counselling session and it's someone else. And it's just, you know, it's not the same as getting real, you know, psychoanalysis, I think is really what I needed at that point, because I had lots of suicidal ideation, it was pretty bad. That was in my youth. And for some way, shape or form, I think in my 20s, I kind of ran away from home as in, obviously, I I was already able to, but I decided to leave home and all my responsibilities. I was basically like a husband to my mom, working a lot, contributing to rent and things like that, looking after my sister and I needed a life. So I, I escaped. And it was through my adventures, sort of just, yeah, coming into my own and relinquishing myself of that responsibility of being such a figurehead in the family that I I guess I managed to do a bit of healing and that was through a lot of recreational use of psychedelics that kind of helped me find myself in the midst of my like turmoil and I think that kind of held me in place for a little while until it all came it always catches up with you. This is the thing about trauma. And I was using these medicines recreationally, but they definitely had a healing effect. I say a healing effect because of the way that I was using them with friends, growing friendships, getting to know people on really deep intimate levels, the way these medicines sort of open you up, even when you are using them without intent for healing. So at this point, yeah, I'd moved to Lisbon and it all just came crashing down. It was it was seriously bad. I had a bit of a traumatic experience in my family with my mum. 
this time I knew it was like make or break. You know, I had a good like six months of like isolate. I, I was terrible. I couldn't go out without, you know, I was like this shaky and like just high anxiety, complete and utter low self-esteem, barely, you know, just broken, severely broken and unable to kind of function socially at all. My whole body was telling me that I was ill. This is when the actual healing journey began because I decided, right, okay, so I can either go see a therapist or I can have a therapist on the side or I can really try and figure out what this is and how to get it to stop plaguing me for the rest of my life. You know, by this point, I'm in my early 30s and I was just like, I've lost too much of my life already to this illness. And that's when the journey began, really. I kind of dived deep into the neuroscience of it all and just started experimenting with all sorts of different, quite holistic modalities because I decided that I didn't want to go on SSRIs. I knew it wasn't the route for me just because of feedback from friends and people that I knew that were on them. And, you know, I did my research, no offense to them. But the modalities that worked, I was doing everything from breath work to yoga to meditation, listening to brain reprogramming audios and just diving deep. And it was by way of a bit of a spiritual awakening through my meditation and yoga process that psychedelics kind of just came knocking on my door. Now I'm here. (laughs) That's when it all really began. It's been an epic adventure. You know, I had three years of really going slow and getting to know the medicine, did a lot of prep work. And now I, yeah, I can say psilocybin is part of my well, it's become a sort of ritual, spiritual ritual and, yeah, ongoing practice. I've just woven it into my way of being. It's, yeah, it's kind of part of my life, a permanent part of my life, I think. Uh, yeah, developed a really lovely relationship with it and decided over time, you know, it wasn't like overnight I healed. I'm still healing. It's led me on this deep spiritual and emotional journey really sort of taking me you know through my wounding and readdressing the parts of myself that I completely lost and forgot about rediscovering my art and my writing and the things that I love that I kind of just like compartmentalized and you know just put on a shelf at the back recesses of my mind yeah and I guess this is what these medicines do they kind of bring you back to yourself and even more so my five-year-old self my animus self and that's a bit that I'm the most excited about currently because they've triggered this yeah this deeper awakening you know you think you have a spiritual awakening but there's so many levels to waking up you know it's a constant and it's beautiful and so healing and I've kind of inspired myself basically I just kind of could witness my own growth witness my own evolution and just wanted to share this with people like a lot of people do once they start to heal it wasn't an instant with having the medicine and knowing well even before I took it I was like I have a feeling this is going to turn into a a long-term relationship (laughs) and I'm going to be working with these things and I I was growing them and and talking to them and getting all this yeah it was uh I know I'm gonna sound crazy 
But uh, no, there's a tree hanger in this in the vicinity or or of I just Yeah, you already know it. I don't feel alone. No. I'm like I, yeah. I was like someone admitted that to me. Yeah, so doesn't sound weird at all. No, we we're like, give it. <laughs> I love that. So admitting that I talk to my yeah, to my little shoes as I yeah would be I have a cool. question. Tending to them, yeah. You've kind of spoken already about the sense of like entering into a relationship with the mushrooms, mm. and I'd love to hear you speak on that. Just what the nature of that relationship is, and kind of how you perceive the mushrooms, and maybe how the mushrooms perceive you in a way. Because there's kind of these different mm. paradigms. You know, some of us talk about mushrooms as like teachers, and other people talk about them as tools. And I think there's a huge difference in the experiences we have and the ways that we approach them and orient ourselves to them, depending on whether we see them as like intelligent or animate. You know, so I'd love to hear just kind of what the nature of that relationship is for you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see them as alive. They are a healing intelligence. I can understand why people would call them tools, although I don't really like that word because, yeah, it kind of renders them a bit defunct of any of their own intelligence, you know. I see them as a mix of things, as a guide, as an elder sometimes. You know, I do have journeys where it feels like I'm being spoken to by a stern kind of I don't know <laughs> grandparents <laughs> and sometimes a really loving nurturing mom I mean all the time nurturing always always nurturing but sometimes a bit stern and sometimes very playful and oh we've yeah it's a friendship I would say I've got to that point where I feel like it's a friendship actually it wasn't always from the beginning I'm not scared to admit that yeah, I had a lot of reverence for them. And because of my very first experience on mushrooms, which was not well planned and completely, yeah, wrong set and setting, let's say, I didn't know much about them and really couldn't comprehend their impact and what they did to my consciousness, what I was seeing, the world was melting, you know, everything was kind of like, it was just unreal. I guess it just reflects how naive I was and how and this is you know early 20s just being silly I had already tried quite a few different synthetic psychedelics and just sort of partnered them together and thought it'd be something similar to I don't know MDMA with a bit of hallucinations that's (laughs) kind of what I expected which wasn't the case and I OD'd as well I took a whole bunch and they didn't work and then took some more So starting this process, I really had respect for them and I used them with reverence and I definitely had, this is what I mean about the relationship sort of taking shape because I think it has been a bit of an evolution of stern grandparents to loving mother to now kind of friend, confidant, guide. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, and one thing I would say that I think when we hear about a lot of people is like evolution of stories, like the thing that comes up is like the word childlike a lot. Everybody kind of, we all kind of want to be at the innocent state or when people go back, I know for me, I had an intimate, not incident, yeah, incident <laughs> with some, some salvia. And yeah, where it was just like, I didn't know that it could do that to you so hard and quick. But yeah. I instantly went back to my childhood home, boom, instantly there. And so when I hear your stories, it's like something about this child, this innocence that we're all kind of like 
loving and wanting to kind of give back that I just love hearing. And like you said, you love arts when you're a child. I resonate with that so much because when you're a child, you're doing that innocent, just free flowing state of art and just developing what you love. And then when you said, hey, you know, you felt that state where you couldn't do the things that you loved that made you the happiest, that's when you knew that, hey, this is one thing you said you couldn't waste any more time is what you said. And oh no, yeah, and that's what I was like resonated with a lot. That's it. And I think that's what trauma does. It robs you, you know, it wears down your soul. I think, you know, depression kind of just robs you of your passions, of your spirit, of your joy. And when I say robs you, it's not like it just takes it away. It's like a slow degradation. You let it go. You pack it up. You kind of start to like wither yourself down without really realizing it because you lose the joy you you lose that sort of fire and you lose the creativity completely you know and that is a chemical process because you're low on serotonin you know at my worst I wasn't even dreaming that's when I knew it was really bad I'd lost the capacity to even well I don't know if I wasn't dreaming but I I basically had almost a a year and a half where I couldn't remember my dreams and for me that was massively significant being of a creative person because I was always really into dream analysis and to Carl Jung's work and stuff and you know yeah this is what I mean you hit the nail on the head when you just think hang on this isn't life this isn't living there's no color there's no joy there's no happiness anymore even when the sun's shining and I'm on the beach I'm just kind of wanting to yeah sob and you know, have this dark cloud sort of hanging over me constantly. And that's what they do. These, well, these medicines, I'm speaking specifically about psilocybin. And it is that journey back to yourself. It is kind of a reconciliation with all of those aspects of yourself that you've forgotten about and you've lost. And it goes really far back, you know. I mean, I'm sure there's still parts of my childhood self that I'd love to revisit and reclaim. But, you know, then the journey went even further back and to bring me to my ancestors, which has been pretty epic. And a new level of the healing journey has started now. This is what I mean about all these layers, these layers to awakening and the layers to healing. You heal one wound and actually what happens is another one sort of sprouts up or it doesn't sprout it was always there it's just it comes into your line of vision and I think these medicines obviously if you're working with them intentionally and I did the work you know I'm (laughs) I'm not going to be modest I worked really hard on myself and I put the time in and I did it because I was desperate actually I was really desperate I wanted my life back I wanted to be normal and yeah, did a lot of the introspection. That's been the the best process for me, kind of just intuitively leaning into what needed seeing to first, you know, and I guess this is it, you then guided through these layers. Still going through them. (laughs) I would love to hear you talk a little more about what ancestral healing means and what it looks like to you. I think it's like a theme that comes up a lot. And I think a lot of us are beginning to have these experiences of what it is to go back to our roots. And for those who this is like a totally new concept to like, how does that show up in your life? How does it show up in your medicine work or maybe in your daily life and rituals? Like, what does that type of feeling feel like and look like for you? Well, I mean, I think this is why I sort of right from the beginning of sharing my story touched on the race aspect because, you know, I was looking through your questions and I was like, God, there's so many ways that I could answer 
you know, give you a sum up of my life, but which points should I mention and speak to purely because they have been a factor in my healing process and so significant. And that's definitely part of it. The The racial issue connects with my ancestral healing quite significantly. So ancestral healing for me is... God, it works on so many levels because it involves a little bit of visiting your intergenerational traumas to then get to the ancestors. Although it's not necessarily that route, but the two are kind of intertwined because it was through kind of the healing, trying to heal this mother wound of mine that I had to address her wounding from her mother. And this was over quite a few journeys. The mushrooms kind of just showed me I had this altar with photos, memorabilia and all this stuff. I just had all this stuff like morphing, you know, seeing my dad's ancestors and my mum's ancestors and having little glimpses, tiny little glimpses into their worlds and feeling things that made me realise that actually so much of my pain that I have felt in my life has come from elsewhere. I don't necessarily have a direct insight into what that pain is for sure, although some of it has started seeping into my dreams. I mean, don't know whether it's, but I'm trying to connect the dots. It's about connecting the dots. And so ancestral healing is about revisiting your roots. It's about revisiting where the trauma might have started. But also, you know, like at the foundation, it is that journey just backwards. And I can see this reflected in a lot of the black community in the US now, this reverence for the motherland and and Africa, and everyone's working backwards now and trying to reclaim their ancestry and empowering themselves with those stories, you know, looking back into their family trees and trying to really discover where it is that they've come from. And it's so important because we all have roots and at some point or another, they've been severed, whether it's in our direct generation or the generations before. And that severing is a bit of a trauma. So it's about meeting your loved ones and getting to know, you know, I'm not on an intimate level with any of them yet. I haven't gone that deep, but I know that there's opportunity to because they've told me the mushrooms. I think on one of my very first handfuls, they told me, they're like, there's some people that want to meet you. And I was like, no, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Because I was such a person. It was just kind of like spirits and ghosts. And, you know, I wasn't really, you know, getting a sense of what was coming. But, um, yeah, you know, how you sort of just get yourself into an anxious state. That journey has started and specifically with my great grandmother, who I never really knew, but then discovered was a herbalist and was doing a lot of, you know, renowned in her village. This is my granddad's mom. So like obviously never knew her because she was long gone before I was a jungle and mom's eye. And just hearing about that at the point where I was in my medicine work and knowing at the time I was running this store, but I already knew my heart was starting to I was losing the love. And as I was progressively healing, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure whether it was going to be working with the medicine, but I knew it needed to involve giving back and giving back to humanity and, you know, helping people in some way, shape or form with healing their wounds and empowering, you know, I'm all about the empowering model, the DIY model, you know, take stock, take things into your own hands. 
just this relationship with my grandmother, which was really exciting because I think she was one of the first ones that can't explain it, but you know what it's like when you're in the medicine. It's not, she wasn't there, but she kind of came to me. Her spirit was there and I knew straight away. I was like, I'm sure this is my great grandma. And I knew she worked with medicine, even though I didn't know this in real life. Maybe I did when I was younger and forgot. And then I started joining the dots in my waking reality by asking family about her and realizing, oh, so part of why the medicine was showing me this about this specific ancestor is I think they knew that I was looking for something else. And they were trying to show me that being a healer was already in my lineage and it was part of me and part of my blood. And that really gave me the encouragement to pack up my my work and, and start afresh, you know, and it's, massive risk I mean I'd been running this thing for like 10 years no one pivots in their late 30s oh, wow. to a <laughs> career when they have no literally like no experience with psychiatry don't come from a clinical background you know and I've over the last three years just started weaving things you know studying again and just basically equipping myself to be able to support others and really sort of dive as far as I can go into this work and it still feels so new it feels like I just started yesterday which is the great thing about it I'm very excited about where it might go and it's new for all of us anyway and so many of us have come by this work via our own healing journey so I think that's what makes it even more truly beautiful not everybody though they are venture capitalists out there. <laughs> <laughs> in it for the money <laughs> and not for the healing oh, no. mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so with adventures in ohm would you tell our listeners a little bit about kind of the work that you do and where you're hoping to take it in the next maybe couple of years yeah so at the moment adventures in ohm is a bit of a mix of things Primarily, it's a container and a guidance service, let's say. I kind of call myself a transpersonal guide or a mentor. So I do a lot of mentoring. I'm not officially calling myself a guide because I'm not qualified yet, but I'm in training. I've just started my psychedelic practitioner training with Synthesis Institute. But as well as writing about the intersections of psychedelics and spirituality, I mentor, I hold space for people. I do a lot of integration work. And then I also sort of teach and guide in terms of preparation for the journey itself. So I run workshops and classes, have been doing so since October last year, but it's still very new. And I offer a lot of one-to-one sessions. Like I say, I primarily focus on, you know, the majority of people have kind of come it's all been so organic I've been quite lucky with this work like it's a mix of things like I say the writing on one side and training and then this you know hands-on um primarily with folk that have found me via my own shares and my own healing process which is well documented that's one thing I'm so grateful for these medicines for because they've really brought me out of my shell I used to be yeah not I mean this way with friends, but definitely not someone that loves the limelight and would be gladly accepting. The two years ago, this would have put me off, even just being on a podcast, because oh, yeah, I was still in delicate mode then. But yeah, like I said before, I'm all about the empowerment model, wanting to hold space and 
activate people into believing they can actually heal, they can dare to heal. And healing means a whole load of different things for different people, you know, you don't have to be chronically ill. It might just be healing parts of yourself so that you can grow and head in that direction into that new career or take that leap that you've been wanting to, but just haven't found the confidence. So the people that I work with are a mix. I've got young mums that are wanting to pivot into new careers that have low confidence issues to people that suffer with anxiety and depression like me that are inspired to artists. You know, the last students on my course were, I had a poet and a writer that just wanted to, they'd been toying with microdosing and were very excited by the creative input that these medicines bring and then wanting to expand on that. But the thing about, I think, anyone being called to this work is as much as we all have what our version of what it is that we think we're healing, there's so much more. And that is why these medicines call you in, even if we just think it's curiosity. There's always more there. I take them on these journeys, which I feel kind of, yeah, it's a container. You know, it provides a container of knowledge, of guidance, of education to minimize harm reduction, number one. Because on the flip side, on the integration side, when I work with folks that have already gone down the path themselves, it's always a tricky and delicate kind of process because a lot of people underestimate how powerful these medicines are and what they bring up. So even if you've gone in with you know, an intention like me to heal, but you haven't done your homework or the groundwork, things can get pretty emotional and pretty disruptive very quickly if you don't have that container of support and if you haven't kind of mitigated a certain amount of risks by not prepping beforehand. Yeah, speaking of container of support, like how is the perception of psychedelics in Europe? Because I know in America, it's still like the hippy dippy of the 1960s and stuff. Like, what is the perception like? Because you have people who obviously are coming to you. So they're coming to you through word of mouth? Or is it because you feel comfortable enough to openly advertise your services and your community? Like, how does that work out? Because that's something that we are very passionate about, you know, educating people here in the US and, and others, and especially as a black woman. But you said about two years ago, how you never talk about this openly, like, for me to see you being like, hey, I'm openly offering sessions. That's where I would be like, oh, my gosh, like in the US, like, oh, my gosh, I'm gonna go to jail tomorrow kind of thing. It's a fear based thing. And, and so I'd love to hear more about like the perception there and how you go about it. Maybe a little bit about the laws a tiny bit there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, here, I guess, you've got different camps, haven't you? You've got people, they've filtered into the mainstream, they've been in all the publications and all the news. And obviously, you've got two pretty big research institutes here, King's College and Imperial, who are really doing some great work. And Robin Carr Harris and Rosalind Watts, they've been championing this medicine for a while. So I think they're doing a really good job. There's a lot of great research happening with the trials and it's being publicized really well. So the filtering into the mainstream has been great here. The only thing is, I think, and this is in the camp for people that are just like waking up to psychedelics, as in waking up to them being a healing modality, right? 
But I think there is this, yeah, this camp that they're, because they're being compared to antidepressants so much, there's this impression that you take them and, yeah, you might go to an integration class session and then you're kind of fine. (laughs) And it's like people don't really realize how much you have to engage. And I think that's where the trials have fallen short. They're completely illegal here. Yeah you can be arrested for possession. I guess because of my social sphere, I don't know people that... I can't really speak for folks who are really anti them because I think generally, the general public right now, the majority of people are either still sort of scratching their heads undecided about whether it's a good idea for them to be used therapeutically or they're just actually quite intrigued by the science that's coming out, you know. So actually, I kind of feel like I'm in a good safe zone here. In terms of what you were saying, though, about outing myself, I'm saying that now, but that literally has only actually happened for me, I'd say, within the last nine months to a year, actually feeling that brave. But the more of the science coming out, the more shares on Facebook and the more, you know, the Guardian's got the latest stats on the cover, the braver that I become, which is silly, really, because, you know, it shouldn't be down to that. But it acts as a little bit of a of a shield and an anchor when you can have, you know, evidence to say, I'm not working towards feeding people drugs. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's legitimate. But still, you know, I, I kind of, I've started doing things to push myself in terms of sharing because I left it solely on my Adventures in Non platform before and didn't feed it into my personal like Facebook. And I've actually started enforcing that a little bit because there's no point doing this work and having one foot in both kind of ponds of like being a bit shy about it. I'm not saying this, but basically what I'm wanting to do at the moment is just champion all psychedelic medicines in general, you know, and really kind of work to destigmatizing them. So talking openly about even my ex- recreational use of them has been a big thing. And it's been empowering me. It's not easy. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Because, you know, you just see the likes on your Facebook page go right down. And, you know, people sort of shuffling away. From <laughs> but it's fine, because I'm like, this is just like, sieving out sieving sieving out the ones that you know don't need to be around it's okay I made peace with that but um in terms of what I do it's fully legitimate I don't work with the actual medicine in terms of guiding people or anything like that so I don't actually have anything to kind of worry about on that front apart from when people proposition me which I should yes. take the keys from you because I love your posts on Instagram with your, the little, I've seen it a couple of times. <laughs> Don't harass us with the drugs. Yeah, it's always like a disclaimer. Like, but we're so glad to provide the information and educators are not your mushroom providers. Please do not DM us. Like, we're going to tell you the same thing in the DMs. Yeah, and even I'm in the public with like, you know, wild mushrooms every week every weekend selling wild edibles. And so at the point where it's like, you were still like, you this last week, <laughs> this last week, um, my sign says, Temptress truffles, wild edibles. And somebody came up to me and was like, Oh, I'm looking for some mushrooms, but I don't want any of the magical ones. And I'm like, I don't sell the magical ones. And I literally have been standing here <laughs> selling yummy food for 10 years, but all of a sudden now, and then it's when my market manager was standing there 
Then the next person said the exact same thing. And then I think that also has to do with the word truffle because truffles here is like people think it's chocolate. Yeah. So I dealt with that. But now I'm like, yeah. there's a psychedelic truffle. So now I'm like truffles with yeah. the wild edibles. And then we just, it's funny because that's all about when it comes to like the destigmatization and like changing like the languages and the cultures and like just the communication because it's like, for me, within a 10 year period, I, my title of my business to some people in Europe would be like, you're selling wild truffles. You're selling drugs because that's legal there. So I think that's really funny about yeah. that. But, oh my goodness. But I'm out there. I bet. I, I, I bet for you it must be. Yeah. I'm surprised you're, well, it makes sense that you're getting more people inquiring now because they're going mainstream. Yeah. I write down fruiting bodies, right on their, on their paper bag of mushrooms now because, you know, I can't like promote it. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah. and then somebody brings it up because people bring it up all the time now. I'm like, Oh, well, if you're interested in my, right, oh, my pen, cute little fruit bodies collecting. I've been doing that recently. <laughs> Eventually so, we'll have cute little, like, business cards. Yeah. And I market, of course, I can't, like, you know, promote it when I'm with, like, with food and stuff, but there's ways where you can talk about yeah. it in handwriting. It's like, hey, oh, you want to? Okay, here we go. <laughs> but yeah, that's great. But <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Um, I, I love to kind of where you two were headed just in talking about representation and, like, the added, weight and we've talked about this a little bit in past podcasts but just there's more barriers for people of color mm. to even speak publicly about these things and I, I think people are probably familiar with some of the reasons why that is but something yeah. that we've talked about a lot is like wow this just it drives home even more the importance of having our stories out there and having representation not just in individual stories but in every tier of leadership and in every kind of facet of the movement and I would love some of your thoughts, Buki, and, you know, I mean, because you're going through a, an actual like institution now in a training program, and you're seeing a lot of kind of who's represented there and who's not and like whose stories are being told and whose aren't. I would love if you could just speak on like the importance of that representation for healing for people. Oh, God, it, it's so important. I'm so glad that you brought this question up. Because even though my journey working with these medicines started a little while ago before Adventures in Norm actually became a thing, even in my research of looking online and reading up about the trials, I wasn't seeing faces. It was just all the researchers, all the clinicians, everybody, you know, it's you type their names and you see photos of these white researchers. And it very, even to me, it felt like a very white thing. And I, I had those moments of thinking, okay, they're great for healing depression, but <laughs> Depression is depression, right? It's not different for black folks. I know, just it, that sounds really no, silly, no, no. but you do have moments of just kind of thinking, okay. Um, but I still went ahead. But it wasn't really until I set the platform up that it really hit me. And yeah, it, it just shows my level of naivety, kind of just battling with trying to find my voice and struggling with why it was that I couldn't quite sort of find my angle. And I also felt a slight shame in sharing parts of my journey and decided to make it a bit more academic. So I was quoting, you know, Stan Groff and like people that I was reading about and studying. I'm saying all of this because it then dawned on me, I had no frame of reference, what I'd been struggling with the whole time. And this is before I found Charlotte, Charlotte James of the Sabina Project. And then I found Camille Barton. And I was like, yeah, these are my, and I actually did a shout out to them last year. Because I was just like, it's really hard 
it's great being in community and it was great setting up my platform and having people follow me straight away, which also on reflection was because they could see it was a, a black woman in this space. But it took me, I suffered from a lot of imposter syndrome and I still battle a little bit now, but I'm coming to peace with it just because of the work that I've been doing on myself and also just really digging deep. It's like going into the trenches trying to find the black folks in this scene. And that's not because we don't exist. It's just because we're never given any leverage. There's no spotlighting. And that is what is infuriating. The way I've combated it has been by calling people out, not aggressively, but speaking about it and making it known that, you know, it's just, it is an issue, just almost sounding like a broken record every time, um, addressing folk about it. And I say this in terms of whenever I go to talks and workshops, there's a panel and it's a Q&A time. I'm the one that's typing in how many Black employees have you got and are there any Black researchers on your team? Because once you start asking folks those sorts of questions, the movement's growing and evolving now, and it's really a big theme, isn't it? It has been the whole of this year and the tale of last year, really coming to the fore, it has been for quite a while. But I think it's the responsibility of every sector, like you say, right from research level to folks like me that are actually doing the hands-on healing work. I mean, I'm not yet. I'm guiding, uh, mentoring. But um, if we all don't participate in giving folks of colour leverage, lifting them up and spotlighting their work, we're never going to be able to also break that barrier of including more people in this healing work and doing the stigmatisation. Because how can you get more black folk to sort of join the exactly. movement if you don't have black folk uh-huh. within the movement being represented? Oh, yeah, that's what I say. Oh, it's almost like the chicken and the egg. Yeah, completely. You have to include them in the trials. You have to. It's every level. And it's, for me, it's so easy. It's It's kind of, I've been to these panels as in like to just understand what needs to be done. It might not be easy getting, well, okay, let's say it might not. I haven't tried. Um, I think MAPS is advertising currently. They've actually got a scholarship open for, I think it's an MDMA uh, practitioner training specifically for BIPOC, which is brilliant. And yeah, that's happening now. Yay, you shouldn't complain. They're doing it. It could have happened last year or the year yeah, before, and I think though. I did but one or it's two happening. rounds because I, I have a friend here in Portland who she's they, from they Brazil did. and she went through it. That that merits a whole other conversation just yeah. about how, how that is done. Now, who's giving the training? for them for doing it. But that's what I mean. Seeing that, I was like, yeah, that's how you start to round it up. But saying that, I would also love to be at the MAPS desk to see, you know, how many applications they get and whether there really is a struggle at that level as well, you know, and why that is. But we know why it's the war on drugs. And I mean, this is still an emerging industry, and it's still got stigma attached. But I kind of think it's up to those figureheads. It's up to the folks in the upper echelons setting the standard so that everyone follows. Ideally, you want a trickle down because you know, the, from the grassroots level, it happens, but it's so much harder because it means people like me and you have to do two jobs, our job, mm-hmm. and then the job of championing, you know, which is fine because we're going to do that. But it's hard work and it's really unfair mm-hmm. because at the same time, we earn less. 
we're the, the minority and folks in position of power have it at their fingertips to make these small changes very, very, very easily. easily. Um, That's irritating. Yeah. No, they don't make it. So they, um, they don't, they sometimes say when like Black Lives Matter and everybody like support black businesses. I got so many emails. Do you know what black businesses are in this area? Do you know this? I'm like, you can find out just as easily as I can find out. You don't have yeah. to come to me as the, as your black friend or the black person. You can find out. If you want to have a black mycologist, guess what? We're here. If you want to have a, a black educator, maybe it's not so easy, but you're here, you know, Boogie. So it's like because of our culture, because sometimes we have a lot of people, like you said, we get the imposter syndrome because we got a lot of people who are in power always being like, I'm here, I know, and I'm God, and I'm this, and I'm that. And sometimes we tend to shrink back because of that. And that doesn't mean we don't know as much just because we don't have a hundred thousand followers and haven't had the privilege of traveling to every freaking country to try every kind of psychedelic doesn't mean we don't have the same knowledge. And so I think that's one of the things that these companies are learning is that, Hey, just because we're not with all these titles and posturing all the time, doesn't mean that we're not equal equivalent and shouldn't get the same kind of pay for the work that we put oh in. Oh my God, completely. I hear you there and I second that. I, I can remember doing a post quite a while back. This was like sort of earlier last year, probably around this time last year or around when George Floyd died and that's when everything erupted for me and I was like, okay, sorry, can I swear? Yes. <laughs> no. I was like, fuck this. Right, we're going in hard now. I was oh, yeah. just like, we need more black people in this space right now because I've had enough of this. You know, literally, I was just like, what are we doing about this? And that's when it really dawned on me as well. I was like, I know why I'm shrinking back. I know why I'm always second guessing myself, you know, triple checking every single sentence that I write on this platform because... I'm surrounded by all these experts and their respect to them, people that I love and I follow genuinely, you know, I'm not being dismissive. I also think, yeah, I respect education and I respect having experience, but at the same time, there's no hierarchy in psychedelics. Do you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) we're all equals really in the healing sphere. So Every voice counts here. Every voice is actually super important in terms of perspective because, you know, you hear Rosalind Watts talking about the fact that every single time a trial run goes, they're making so many tweaks and changes because they're still learning. They're still learning about this medicine and they know that every single human brain holds a different set of memories. Our programming is similar to a certain degree, but we all hold our trauma in different ways. And this medicine works in different ways. So, you know, focusing on one segment of the population isn't really giving you clear data. It's not going to be substantial enough to talk for the actual population that you're trying to serve. Because it's like you look at the stats of who's suffering from depression And actually, yeah, I I mean, I don't know about the States, but over here, it's pretty bad in terms of black folk. Why? Because they're the most downtrodden. They're the poorest. They are the least employed and the list goes on, you know. So really to not have them included in the trial, it just, it doesn't even make any sense. And it's institutional you know, racism racism or or prejudice, whatever you want to, however you want to frame that. To be honest, the trials here, I haven't, I need to double check the stats, but it's the same reflection as the US. 
I think maybe slightly higher and in terms of the trials here, in terms of how many BIPOC folk were included. But that is changing. The representation matters because the thing is that there's a growing number of people using these medicines. They might not be using psilocybin, but for sure they're using LSD, for sure they're using MDMA, and they're definitely using cannabis. So it's also about the specific psychedelic, the, the specific medicine as well. You know, so I, I'd love surveys to be done in terms of, you know, because we keep talking about the fact that it is the war on drugs and the stigma that isn't drawing people in. I would like some sort of study to be done on which one it is specifically, like folks write a list, which one are you the least drawn to, let's say. And then, you know, maybe some trials and studies can be sort of shifted around. You see what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. is in, we have to fine tune the way we research also to the demographic that we're trying to, you know, I'm saying all of this, I'm not a researcher, but for me, that's the way I see it, you know, in terms of every study has to also shift to reflect the participants in there. Maybe they know that. And that's possibly why some folk aren't included in the trials, because it's a different set of questions. It's a different sort of trauma. I think sometimes there's like this institutional unwillingness to change, you know, it's like when you have been in control of the narrative, and you are on this narrow focus track that works for you and the people who look and feel and live like you. And then this movement comes and says, hey, what are you doing for all of us? You know, and I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is a lot of politically correct responses. Well, like, we're looking into it, we're creating a board, we're going to take our time and be really intentional. And like, at this point, it's like, okay, you know, a year over a year has passed, you know, since this yeah. movement has really come alive. So like, what have you done? You know, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's totally reflected here in the psychedelic space. No, I hear you. I think I mentioned that when we were chatting the other day, that it's almost procrastination. And I love the way you put it, you know, about, yeah, how we're addressing it. Those are the responses that I was hearing last year as well, you know, attending these conferences, and there'd always be someone piping up at the end and asking. And then, you know, you just think, how hard is it, though? How long do you really have to think about it? Because it's as easy. You know, I think I actually attended this one session where this I'm not going to say what organization she's working for, a European one. And she actually said, oh, it's going to take years. It's going to take maybe 10 to 15 years. It's an organization in Germany. I'll go that far. Huge. And I'm thinking, why? Yeah, if something's a priority, you will make it happen now. Really not a priority to you. Yeah. Yeah. You can start tomorrow. How hard is it to employ black folk? How hard is it to advertise specifically? Really, really not that. 10 to 15 years? I was like, is that an actual genuine (laughs) response? Um, Oh, gosh. I don't know what that is. Even thinking about it rationally, I can't figure out why there is this kind of resistance to adapting a very easily adapted model, you know, because guess what? The model is still being built at the moment. It's not like it's a fixed thing from a couple of decades ago. We're building it currently, right? That's something we've been talking about a lot at Fruiting Bodies is like, as we are navigating this space and like the formation of Oregon's program, we're starting to find where there are hierarchies and almost like these power grabs and where there's opportunity for 
imagining something else and something we've been talking about is like, okay, we keep talking about calling people to the table, calling people to the table. But what if there shouldn't be a table? Like, what if we actually should burn down the table and go meet people in a metaphorical picnic in the forest, so to speak, you know, go to where people are and do things on their terms, you know, and completely decentralize and like that, I'll tell you why I think I don't think it's confusing for people. I think there's resistance because A, it's change and B, it's a transfer of power. It's handing power back to the collective, which is very threatening, you know, and it's, it's not the conscious level. It's the subconscious, like someone wants to shake things up and change things. And this feels different. And there's so much internal bias, like there's so much and it's so deep in there, especially when you're used to being in a position of leadership, you know, and I think that the therapists and the doctors and researchers in this movement are going to have a much harder time learning how to create space for this thing because so much of facilitating so much of this healing work is getting out of the fucking way and how do you get out of the way when you have been told that you are the guide and you're the god and like you know and that you have what someone else needs like it's you've been authority on it for such a long time and so this paradigm is completely different and so for people like us who have imposter syndrome I I just want to say like We're the ones who should be here. We have so much less to unlearn because we already know about how to get out of the way. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. Completely second that. Again, it's such a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. So much less to, you know, we're we're less rigid. It's going to take, it is going to take a while. (laughs) No, you you made me understand her her reasoning better. I'm like, that's why it's going to take you 10, 15 years. (laughs) That's how long it's going to take for you to get out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of unlearning. And honestly, I think a lot of probably healthy peer pressure and a lot of hearing things over and over and over until people realize this is not a fringe thing. This is not rhetoric. I heard that said last week. This is really politicized. This is a human issue. And like, however long it takes for us to understand that, like, you know. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, literally just looking at the stats from the trials says it all about the lack of inclusion. If you just want to focus on one segment of this movement, one tier of it. Yeah. So it being rhetoric. Yeah. That's quite painful to hear. Yeah. It's really, really uh, damaging when things are framed that way. Yeah. Very, 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 you know, shifts are happening. I think we're moving in a positive direction yeah and that's yeah we're totally hopeful. I hope there's there's such a coalition and I think there's a global coalition of so many individuals and organizations that are really as I say like just tuned into this channel they're thinking about the ways these things are intricately connected and so they're prepared to show up to psychedelic healing with this whole understanding of like what is healing justice yeah so I'm hopeful there's glimpses, but like it's anyone's game. It, it remains to be seen how this thing is going to play out. It's still so early. It's still so early, but then things are moving quite quickly. I mean, imagine what God knows what next year, <laughs> this time next year is going to look it's like. It's going to be wonderful. We're going we're gonna to be hanging out on a beach somewhere, having a little retreat yes. between all of us. Yeah. And it's going to be so <laughs> yeah. good. We're, our, our type of momentum is needed because the other type of momentum that's the monkey on our back is going to be the capitalists, the people who are all about the money. And that is why we are here because we know right now they're here, they're on it. So in order for us to be 
Uh, I'm not saying taken seriously, but to be heard, we know right now is the time that we have to speak up. So when that other entity happens, when it does happen, that people are going to maybe question like, hey, okay, I see, let's just name it. I see magic mushroom ink cures depression, you know, coming out, you know, like, oh my gosh, let's just say there was something burning bodies whatever solution out there so you know supporting people are going to eventually know hey like we were talking about with the food and vegetables and what you take into your body does this magic mushrooms ink truly support or are we going to go you know support the community and the collective of fruiting bodies members and that because that's when we they'll be on our side because the community is going to know public knows black lives matter we have all these movements coming on right now that are making companies and capitalist companies have to represent themselves in a different way, which is really nice. But we also have to remember that they're doing it for the dollar. And then our community is going to actually call them out and bet them too, which is great that we're doing this right now. Completely. Yeah, it is so great. It's great that you're giving people the option and you're getting in there first. There needs to be more of us, really. I'm actually even, as well as you know, trying to entice people to empower themselves and go on their own healing journeys. And I'm not anti the clinical um, model, not at all. It's we're still yet to really see how that's going to pan out. And to be fair, you know, the UK is a little bit behind the US. So it's going to be another three to four years over here at the minimum. We don't know though. in the meantime, though, because there's so much press and good press about the benefits of things like psilocybin and MDMA, it's really encouraging. People have got the impetus here. The Psychedelic Society here is doing a lot of great work. I'm hopefully also going to be collaborating with them at some point soon, which is exciting. But just generally in terms of kind of championing them, I can see the movement over here of self-healing, is is what I call it, really taking off in the next few years. So there is going to be a need for uh, therapists that can offer psychedelic integration and people like me, more guides that are able to sort of take people through the preparation and integration process. And, you know, like what you're saying about your work over there, we need more grassroots folk coming into this movement before things get too rigid, before it becomes, I'm just really worried they're going to be sort of whittle down into a very similar version to an antidepressant, which is not necessarily a bad thing if it is going to help people heal. It's just that they don't work in the same way. They People need to be held. They need a container. They need support. And I think you can already see things happening at some uh, ketamine centers where people are given the medicine but there's no aftercare Mm -hmm. you know and I that that could lead to chaos Mm -hmm. actual chaos Mm -hmm. um so there's a bit but you know I'm I'm an optimist but I'm also a realist and I'm kind of just thinking like how is this gonna really work you know in terms of you know how it's delivered but it's gonna happen in stages for sure I'm you know without a doubt it will be yeah, decriminalized here for therapeutic use and administered by clinicians only for probably, I don't know, a few decades before we move anywhere else. But I don't know, you, you're, this is why I'm so excited by the US. You guys are really spearheading things. 
I'm a little bit suspicious as to why that is. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> should be. Um, we are not, not you guys in general. No, we are just, too. Yeah, Everybody I'm just a bit be. like, mm-hmm, this is really hmm, something, <laughs> something a little bit. When do- too many doors start opening, it's too easily. Right? <laughs> that's why we're, yeah, yeah and that's why Fruiting Bodies is here to, you know, try to hopefully, like, get ask those questions and, hold on, this is still too good to be true kind of stuff. And, yeah. like, let's, like, like let's you know raise a little little flag and you know question people with this like that's fine that's fine we're we're used to it we're going we're here for it our community you are here for it and then you know that's why we are having this conversation right now so we can make sure that we are having setting the right intentions and aftercare and all that um you did talk a lot about like your whole story about what healing means to you 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 talked about that a lot in like the beginning with your journey and with how you how you teach people about healing and how to heal themselves. Like one of the questions that we've asked towards the end, even though you said a lot about healing, is there anything else that you'd like to let our, like our listeners know about what healing means to you? I guess it's about, like I say, it's about reconciling with all parts of yourself. You know, the, the, the parts that you lost, the parts that you've neglected, the parts that have been traumatized or you hate, you know, it's, it's, it's coming into equilibrium with yourself and learning to love yourself for who you are, really, which is what brings you back into your fullness, recognizing all those aspects have value and um, making peace with a lot of, yeah, a lot of what you've been through, I guess, what, you know, a lot of your wounding, a lot of your trauma. Like I say, it's all about layers because healing kind of goes beyond yourself, doesn't it? You start to heal for others in a sense you know when you go beyond you start to sort of obviously it's, it brings you back to family your community and then yeah the greater like collective I guess so it really depends how far you want to take it as well yeah I think that kind of sums it up yeah Becca do you want to ask um, the last question Maybe I would love to I know this is my it. favorite question <laughs> Bookie, what is your dreamy dream? Like, no holds barred, not practical. Like, what do you dream of for yourself and for the collective? Oh, that's a good one. Well, yeah, for the collective liberation, I think would be the ultimate. Having the liberty to um, be the masters of our own consciousnesses would be great, for one thing. So decriminalizing all psychedelic medicines would be first on my list. Um, as just a standard and then for me personally I mean oh god so it's tricky and it's not to formulate that because I've got 101 different ideas I mean specifically for Adventures in Om I've got ideas of having a really personalized boutique sanctuary that's focused on obviously healing and introspection and would have like a potent mix of different modalities, not just the medicine work. So you'd be guiding people through the prep, the the actual journey process, but then they'd be there for like maybe even a couple of weeks not leaving. <laughs> um, I love the idea of really collaborating with people because there's, you know, I'm really getting into more sort of, you know, somatic therapy and movement and I love art and I'm thinking about, doing some art therapy work at some point. 
I'm a yoga teacher. I don't teach at the moment. But so the idea is to just also collaborate and invite. I'd love something that was like a case where I'd invite different practitioners and therapists to come for residencies and sort of stay. This is somewhere really idyllic as well that's beautiful and warm all the time. Of course. <laughs> just like surrounded by greenery yeah. and in nature and just lush and dreamy. <laughs> Doesn't really, I'm not sure how that would work for most people and how, how I would make it pay for itself. But I guess in some way, the idea would be it would be a collaborative effort and thing about people coming on a residency, they would maybe have the opportunity to delve into a certain aspect of their work that they don't get to on their day-to-day, in their day-to-day practices, maybe. So it'd be a bit of an experimental kind of healing space (laughs) for people that are up for going deep and crazy. (laughs) Yeah. We're so here for it. That's like literally, that's what we say. That's our, we all have the same, we we have the same dreamy dream pretty much. So we're going to have a network around the world of these like, very totally. magical I'm spaces. In. Or Boogie like can move, or, or, or you're hired when we have our, if we have a yeah. space. You, you can come, come here you and help us here. start ours, and then we'll come there and yeah. help you start yours. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the game. That's actually what I mean by this. Because then we all do it. We all have a, yeah. completely, yeah, exactly, like, yes, cooperative is the word. Yeah. That's it. See? Love that idea. Totally. So I've heard people say that if, if you can visualize something and if it feels real when you visualize it, that it's totally within the realm of possibility. So totally. just gonna mention that. Saying, oh my gosh. This has been so good talking with you and learning yeah, about you. Been, it's been it's just been such a good time. Because we could go on for literal hours and days and I'm sure like touch every aspect of everything in life. Yeah. What, where would you like our listeners to find you? And like, how would you want us, you know, to further keep connecting with you and watch your moves? Like, let us know how to connect with you, please. Well, I'll be honest and say I've been so busy with lots of different trainings and running workshops and things that my website's taking a bit of a beating. I've got a little window in the next two weeks. I'm going to give it a freshen up. And I've been putting together all these resources. So they can find me by my website. It's just not super up to date. And that is adventuresinom.com. But I'm on Instagram mostly day to day. So that's adventures.in.om. And they can, yeah, slide into my DMs, follow me, share my work, (laughs) share this podcast when they listen to it. Yeah, I think that's it. Sign up to my newsletter as well. Yeah, really sign up. Oh my gosh, Spooky. Thank you so much. Like once again, like that guy, what do you have anything else that you could <laughs> I know. I'm just so inspired. Every time we talk, I know we've had a few collaborations now and I yeah. just have been so looking forward to this because just your brilliance and your story and your perspective are so important and so appreciated in this space. So um it's just it's always a gift to collaborate with you and I'm sure this is the first of many conversations we'll have over the years. Definitely. No, I look forward to more. You you both know how inspired I've been by your work. And it was so exciting. I have, probably haven't said it, but so exciting to discover you and have a look at your website. And I've j- just been catching up only recently with your podcast, which I absolutely love. And just everything that you're doing, it's such a great mission. And it's so heartfelt, which, you know, radiates that and that's so important because there is a lot of ego in this movement let's not lie um so it's nice to have this you know sort of 
authenticity. I think it's what is going to draw people in and it's what's making you such a success already. Um, people are drawn to that. Not to mention that you're just generally doing quite great work anyway. But as an add-on, it's like, what? <laughs> and they're great. Oh, no. We, <laughs> we think the same about you, especially, like, just being, like, you know, over this, or across the, what did they call it? Across, across the, the pond. pond. <laughs> like, just even for me as a black woman, like, looking at another black woman, and you're like, you're, you sound so typical American. <laughs> but it's, like, your accent and, like, I'm, like, hang on to everything that you do because the way you hold yourself is like so beautiful and black women need to see other black women like you and like sometimes we get stuck into like being the u.s like slavery all this it's like we can get so stuck heavy and it's uh, and sometimes it's hard to think that there's black people who have british accents like 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 like, that sounds very american but this is the truth like we're like and when you say things like i'm like when i when i heard you talk for the first time and you were saying something on our message like something about a buttery something a buttery toast a buttery toast a buttery i really was like oh my goodness and then like and when we hung up, when we hung up i was like i i said to myself you know what that's that's a proper accent like proper okay. <laughs> and like that it's like we love that and that's like the biggest part of like creating bodies like sharing our story sharing your face sharing like you being like just beautiful and out there and just transparent oh. like that's i mean that just having your face here and just that means the world to us. <laughs> we can go on. But Thank yeah. you. No, and it's it, it's important that, you know, you're reflecting it back at me, that authenticity is what's needed in this work. It's not easy, and it isn't always sort of shiny and glamorous, but it's real. I think that's really inspiring to folks because at the end of the day, we're doing this work for the collective, aren't we? We're not doing it for the clinicians and the academics and the therapists. We're doing it for the people. Um, we're involving all of those, yes, and we're part of their our, our crew. So it's, yeah, it's one of my top three values, I think, authenticity. Oh, all right. On that <laughs> note, I guess we'll stop there and I'm sure we'll yeah. talk to you soon. Everybody go follow Definitely. Adventures in Ohm and uh, subscribe to Fuku's newsletter and um, we can't wait to see what unfolds next. Yes, looking forward to more chat. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's the end of today's episode. There's still so much to talk about. Want to collaborate with us or learn more about our discussion today? Visit fruitingbodiescollective.com or tag us on Instagram at fruitingbodiesco. Until next time, be like the mushrooms, stay connected, transform dead things, and grow on your own timeline.